We've been looking in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, last week, uh, we were in chapter 9, 1 through 14. This week, we're actually looking at 15. We're just going to get through 22. Hopefully, we'll get through that. But just a quick reminder uh, of Hebrews for some that might be joining and haven't been a part. Hebrews was written, and the primary theme is that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme to everyone, to angels, to Moses, to the high priest, to the Aaronic system, the sacrificial system. He, he's, he is supreme to everything. And, and we saw that uh, there have already been three warnings to uh, the people who were in and around Rome. This is written about 65 to 70 AD. And there was, there was a, three primary groups of people this letter was written to. One was the first group had left the uh, Jewish sacrificial system, the old covenant system that had been set in place, and they had placed their faith in Jesus. They were all in with him. And so they were, they were struggling, though, because they were being persecuted and ostracized from Jewish brothers. And so they were being tempted to go back and to kind of conflate some of these things uh, of Jewish, the Jewish sacrificial system with Jesus. And then there's a second group that was uh, in this faith community that had left our Jewish practice of the sacrificial system in the old covenant, but they had not yet become all in with Jesus. And then there's a third group who's still trying to decide. And we saw three warnings in Hebrews chapter two. Don't ignore this invitation. Don't, don't drift because you've heard it. Uh, the second thing is um, chapter three says, don't harden your heart. When you hear, when you hear this message, don't harden your heart, but let your heart be soft to what God's doing and come all in with Jesus. And the third is don't waver. It was in chapter five, verse 11 through chapter six. Uh, he says, don't waver, be all in. And then in chapter seven, he dealt with Melchizedek and, and uh, Psalm 110, which basically was a messianic uh, psalm that that talked about Jesus being the fulfillment of the old covenant in the new covenant. And, and Melchizedek, uh, the order of Melchizedek was mentioned in Psalm 110 and um, I, like 11 times in the New Testament, Psalm 110 is mentioned. And in this text um, of Hebrews, this, this letter, it's mentioned a lot because it's showing that Jesus is a better priest. Remember, the most important feature in the old covenant system was the high priest. And Jesus was mentioned in chapter four as the new high priest. And the reason he went into the third warning is he said, you guys don't can't figure out Melchizedek right now because you don't even you're not mature enough. And the maturity was not based on age. It was based on the Holy Spirit being in them. And they just didn't have it. And so he gives them that warning. And then he goes into that in chapter 7, explaining Melchizedek. Chapter 8, explaining the new covenant mentioned in Jeremiah 31. That this new covenant offers us God's grace. It offers us God's power and mercy. It was not like the old covenant. You see, in the old covenant, it was a two-way system. It was it was. The two way and, and, and God says, you're in a new covenant now. In fact, five times in chapter eight, he said, I will. I will establish a new covenant. I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. I will put my law in their hearts. I will be their God. I will be merciful to their sin and remember their sins no more. So the need for the priesthood in the old way was removed. And last week, we saw God reveal the divine purpose and limits of the old covenant. 
remember we saw the old covenant provided a limited dwelling place for God. Only the high priest once a year got to be in God's presence. It was very limiting. And then second, it was a limited picture of a coming reality. And we talked about the tabernacle and how the tabernacle itself was kind of like a map or instructions of what it was going to look like with Jesus. And then we saw that the uh, old covenant was limited with the accessibility to the father. You had to be invited in only the high priest and only once a year for a very short time. And then we talked about it being a limited covering versus cleansing. And in Matthew 27, we mentioned the veil was torn from top to bottom after the crucifixion, meaning that now it wasn't just a limited access and a limited covering, but we can be cleansed and we can have 24 seven access to God. But the fifth thing was that the ministry was focused on external. All their sacrifices dealt primarily with ceremonial or surface stuff. They never really dealt with the internal. And we looked at the internal last week, I'm sorry, the new covenant in uh, chapter nine, Uh, dealt with the divine reality that was pictured in this tabernacle. Remember, um, he dwells inside of us. He doesn't dwell in a tabernacle. That's why uh, he doesn't dwell in a church building unless the church people are there. Unless believers are there, Christ isn't in a building anymore. He's not at a place. He's in us. He's in us. First Corinthians, Paul says, he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So that means he, we are never alone. We're never alone because he dwells in us. Second, we saw the new covenant provides an unlimited, more effective sacrifice. You see, the lamb was a copy, but Jesus was a better sacrifice. The lamb was only a partial atoning payment. Jesus was a, like the final payout. In, in other words, he made us secured with his payment. He covered it all forever. It was a better cleansing. It says last week we looked at it said he doesn't just cover our sin. He even covers our dead works, our efforts. And that's why we are cleansed. We should rejoice always. Well, this week we're in chapter nine, verses 15 through 22, and it really deals with this issue of why did Jesus have to die? Why did he die? Why did he have to die? Why couldn't God do it another way? Well, God reveals the answer and his righteousness in this text today and showing us how he merged mercy and justice. If there's anything we should understand and be affirmed in, guys, we should know it should be why Jesus had to die and the nature of the atonement. In this text today, three times, three times he mentions death in just these six, seven verses. Six times blood is mentioned. And the reason is without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness no access to God, no peace. Unless God's justice is appeased, to quote my friend Tommy Nelson, God's hands of mercy are tied without the shedding of blood. There's no mercy without justice. So the old covenant said, you do this, I provide this. But under the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 and with Jesus, God says, I have provided, now do this. 
And so I want to read the text. And as I read, I want, I want to point out three things, okay? First, God calls us to a divine invitation. Verse 15, we're going to see. He calls us to a divine invitation. Second, God explains Messiah's death with a legal illustration in verses 16 and 17. And then third, the third thing he does is he shows us that covenants are are always secured with blood. Sin always demanded blood. It shows us the great cost to God and the great cost of our sin. So let's let's look at this starting in verse um, verse 15, and we're going to read down through 22. He says, therefore, what do you mean, therefore? Well, everything I said about last week, the new covenant brought, he says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions covered under the first covenant. So what he's saying there real quick is all the transgressions under the first covenant, the Old Testament people are covered under what Jesus did. So for where a will is involved in verse 16, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, Not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. May God bless the reading of his word. As we think about what he said in verse 15, him calling us, he gives us this divine invitation. He says, when he says, therefore, he is the mediator. The mediator is a go-between. And, and basically, talking about Jesus, he is the go-between between us and God of a new covenant. The new covenant was Jeremiah 31. And so notice he says, so that those who are called, I don't know if you know this, but in the New Testament, believers are only called Christians three times. Did you know that, David Gray? (laughs) Only three times in the New Testament, believers are called Christians. Peter called us Christians. Agrippa called us Christians. And the Antiochians called us Christians. Twice by enemies. More often, believers are referred to as believers. And then this word that he uses here, called called. You see, we were dead on the bottom of the ocean floor and he breathed life into us and then he called us. So we are called people. He called us that we may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Internal inheritance. Verse 14, if you if you go back to verse 14, it says, eternal spirit 
Go back to verse 12. It says eternal um, redemption. So what you have is you have an eternal divine person make an eternal payment to give us an eternal reward, something that lasts forever. And that internal reward is accessible here on earth because the eternal reward is a 24 seven access relationship with God the Father. You don't have to wait to, to get that, you get it now. I think sometimes we forget that, that we have that 24 seven access to God right now, right now, 24 seven access. For, for us to live that way shows other people well, they, they want to know, why are you different? Why do you have such peace in the midst of a pandemic? Why do you have peace, you know, when you're dealing with terrible things in your life, broken relationships, whatever they are, it doesn't matter, Jeff, you know, that if, if you are dealing with a situation with the understanding that you have 24-7 access to the creator God of the universe, nothing else matters. That's what Paul said in, in, um, when he said in Corinthians, he said, listen, these are light and momentary afflictions. I want you to think about it for a second. If tomorrow your bank account went to zero, is it okay? I'm not saying it wouldn't have a little bit of pain for you, but in light of knowing that God has the ability at any time to replenish anything, do we really believe that? You see, that's a hard concept for people when they look at the church because they don't see people that live that way. They see people that live like they live. There's no difference virtually between the church and everybody else. We carry ourselves like everybody else. And we have, we've been called to a divine invitation. We have an eternal inheritance that, that we have access to right now. You know why? What do you have to have to get an inheritance? You have to have a death. And that's the point. The problem for the Jews was they struggled with a suffering, dying Messiah. But to receive an inheritance, you have to have somebody die. Nobody gets an inheritance until somebody dies. And, and Jesus' death removed the obstacle of our sin and gave us an inheritance. But if you've ever gotten in an inheritance... I haven't, but if you do, I know my dad, you know what my dad did? My dad is 86, 80, I'm sorry, he's 87 years old. And my dad went out and what he did is he planted trees on all of his land. He owns a lot of land in Mississippi. And he said, for you boys, for me and my brother, I'm gonna plant trees. And so you're gonna be able to sell this wood and it's gonna add to the inheritance I leave to you. Now that was smart planning on my dad's part, but what he did is he's saying he has an inheritance, but guess what? My dad's still alive, I don't get that. Now I don't want my dad to die because I want my dad to still be here. But my point being is until he dies, I don't get it. And the point is that unless there's a death, you don't get an inheritance. But the Jews struggled with this. And so what this writer did is he explained to these people that the death, he gives them a legal illustration of a will. And, and so look in verse 16. He says, 
In verse 16, he says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. And in the term will there, I don't know if you know this, so it's, it's diatheka, diatheka, which means will or covenant. It can mean either will or covenant. That word means, it, it means something entered into and in this particular case, it's not the word suntheka, which suntheka means an agreement or covenant entered into with two equal parties. But diatheka means an, an agreement entered to by a greater party. And the thing about a will is, is a will is not a negotiation. It's not a negotiated agreement. A will is somebody saying, I'm going to leave this or give this to you when I die. And so he goes in and he says in verse 16, he goes, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Why? Because Jesus had to die for our sin to go away. God said in his word in Romans 6, 23, that most of you know, for the wages of sin is death. Back in the Old Testament, where there's sin, there has to be death. Without the shedding of blood, there has to be a shedding of blood. It's not that Jesus' blood, you know what, uh, Chuck, if, if Jesus' blood splattered on you, do you think that would cleanse you? That's not, it's not the blood. It is the death. When he talks about the shedding of blood, the life is in the blood. When he died, it was his death that paid the penalty. And so for a will uh, to take effect, there has to be a death. And he goes, verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And so here's the thing. He's just giving this uh, legal illustration to show that without a death, a will can't be enacted. And that's because these people are struggling. Even today, and John knows this, um, because John is very familiar with the Jewish people and their uh, their system. Do you know that they don't even read Isaiah 53 when they do their readings every year? And the reason is it's a suffering, dying Messiah. They can't handle that. These people were struggling with that. So that's why he lays that out. And so the so so what is he doing? He goes then into verse 18 through 22. And the third thing is he reveals the cost and the value of his provision. Sin had a terrible cost. So God calls us to a divine invitation, verse 15. He explained Messiah's death with a legal illustration, verse 16 and 17. And 18 through 22, he reveals the cost and the value of his provision. And before I go into this, I just want to ask you this question real quick. How much... Do you value what he did for you? I, I think a lot of times we flippantly look at it and I'm not saying in our minds we do that. I'm talking about the practical application in our life. Most every day I try to come home and think about what I did during the day that his death covered for me. And lately it's been a lot more than the last few months uh, because I've struggled 
And I have to come back and just, I, I'm so grateful for what he did because it has a, an incredible value because you know what, without it, I couldn't sleep at night. I got peace because I confessed to him and I thank him. But sin always demanded blood. Go back to Genesis chapter three, from Genesis to Revelation, back in Genesis 3.21, skins had to be provided for Adam and Eve. And that required a death of an animal. In Exodus chapter 12, for blood to be put over the doorpost, it demanded a death for the Passover. Back in uh, Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement, the day of atonement, an animal had to die. Again, those old covenant sacrifices were merely coverings. And I want you to think of it this way. Um, Under the Corona bill, the coronavirus bill, banks have been ordered to allow you to have what's called a... um, uh, let me think of the word here. It's basically when you extend with a, it, it's a deferment. You can defer payment for six months. But you know what? I called my bank the other day and you know what they said? In six months, you got to pay. I said, well, wait a minute. You think I'm going to have money in six months that I don't have today? I mean, I thought you were putting it at the end of the loan. Oh no, we're getting our money in six months, so you can defer the payment. It's a forbearance. Well, think of it this way. In the Old Testament, sins up until Jesus died, were forbore, they were forbeared or they were deferred until his death on the cross. And so sin has always demanded a blood. I read you uh, Romans 6, 23, the other. And the other thing is, is that covenants, were always secured in blood. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15, remember the blood trail, the blood path, that in Genesis 15. But even in Exodus 19, when God laid down his law for his people, he gave them the invitation in in, in Exodus 19. I'm not going to read it. And then Exodus 19, 8 through about uh, chapter 24, he lays out the terms of the covenant. But look at this in Exodus 24, chapter uh, chapter 24, verse 5, 24, 5. Listen to what it says. And that's what he's referencing here in 18 through 22. He says, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood He put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Why? Because it was the blood that ratified the covenant. And so Jesus' blood ratified. And so our covenant is secured with his blood and his sin payment. And so the cost and the value was God's son, John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Some of you people who have children, think about that. Taking your firstborn child, letting them die so everybody else could live. Think about the cost in that. And so we, we come back to this question. How are people in the Old Testament saved before the cross 
Salvation was on credit. It was forbearance until Jesus came. Romans 3.25 said it was a divine forbearance. The Old Testament sacrifices never took away the sin. They just showed faith. In the New Testament, I mean, the Old Testament, people were saved. They trusted God knowing Jesus would in their future bear sins. In the New Testament, we trust God knowing that he did take away our sins by his death. And so this is illustrated in three people from the Old Testament that are mentioned in the New Testament. In John 8, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Why? Because he knew his sins were forbear until Jesus come. Luke 9 says that Moses and Elijah spoke of Jesus' departure. Why? Because they were excited to see his death on the cross because all their sins that had been forbeared were taken care of that day. He died on the cross. So Acts 17.30 says it this way, God overlooked the full penalty of sin until Jesus died. Until Jesus died. So, God calls us to a divine invitation. He explains Messiah's death with a legal illustration, and then he reveals the cost and the value. And the question we have to wrestle with is, are we fully appreciating his forgiveness? Forgiveness is costly. Our forgiveness, Tim, your forgiveness, Amos, your forgiveness, Christian, your forgiveness, me, my forgiveness, it's costly. Leviticus 17 says that life is in the blood and it has to be shed for our souls to be forgiven. The blood atones for our souls. It's not being good enough. It's not reading the Bible. It's not being on a SWAT Zoom or at a SWAT meeting or a church meeting. It's not thinking about God. It's not thinking about Jesus. It's not doing religious things. It's only the death of Jesus and faith in him. That is it. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Our daily choices, thanks, Bob, our daily choices reveal what we value. Our daily choices reveal the things that we think are important. If I, if I think it's important, I'm going to Starbucks to get me a refresher. Why? It's important to me. If, if I work out, it's important to me. I choose what I do and my values dictate what I do, guys. The question for me and you is, are we valuing what God has done for us and what are we going to do with it? So, Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this word and reminder that what we do shows what we value and what you did for us showed us an incredible value you place on us that you would allow your son to die so we could live my prayer for each one of us lord is that we would be your servants your warriors for truth that lord you would mobilize us to be a force for good to be a force sharing the good news, to be a force, Lord, caring for the widow, caring for the orphan, caring for the marginalized, that we would not hoard, that we would not look just to ourselves, but Lord, we would look how we can serve you by serving others. We thank you for the reminder, and Lord, may your peace rest on us as we continue to serve you in Christ's name, amen.